the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Welcome to another session of Chalcedon's Q&A, questions and answers for the Chalcedon staff, and I'm representing them today. And uh, we're looking forward to having a, a good session today. It's our second time out, and uh, if these continue to be uh, potentially edifying, we'll continue them, so long as there's interest, and uh, so far it looks like there has been. I'm coming on board a little early, just to uh, cover our bases. As you may have recalled, we had some technical fun last time, and uh, in principle, our infrastructure should be a little more professional today than it was last time around. So we'll have to wait and see. In the meantime, uh, Mark provided a very good uh, narrative outlay for what was going on in, his, uh, in terms of those particular uh, parts of the gospel that he was expositing today from the Chalcedon Chapel in Vallecito. Uh, again, an excellent discussion showing some important distinctions and the cultural things that were going on. Welcome, Andrea. Good to have you on board today, too. Uh, our normal technical manager or director is actually not available today, so we are going to be doing the tightrope walk without a net. And that's always a fun and exciting thing. As they always say, that's the uh, blessing of live television, except it's not television, it's uh, the mir miracle of uh, technology that's much, much smaller than a TV, and yet doing things that would have been unthinkable just 30 years ago. So, we shall be waiting for some Q&As, or questions at least. Uh, the A's are going to be my responsibility. Uh, we'll try to do shorter answers. Uh, I, I tend to go in at length because I don't want to leave any stone uncovered when a question is posed, and sometimes there are nuances to be covered. That's a really good one. Is there any reason to believe we'll see healings like Jesus did today? Uh, the reason that most people uh, adopt that position is that Jesus made the comment that the greater works than these shall you do. So he kind of was indicating that what he was doing was just the first fruits of what was to come. Uh, the question is, what is the mechanism by which that would occur? And that's the open question, whether it be direct healing in the name of Jesus, or rather the curse would be reversed as a result of the law of God being spoken and taught and applied and done. Uh, whereby we had that interesting promise in Isaiah 65:17 following, which indicates that, in fact, uh, if someone dies at the age of 100, he's accursed, he's a sinner accursed, whereas that would be considered a baby for someone else. So it is possible that the effects of the curse would be uh, radically changed. We see the same concept expressed in Isaiah 11. Even the animal kingdom comes to be at peace with mankind. Right now there is enmity between us and them. If you don't think so, have your young babies play on a rattlesnake's nest or a cockatrice or asp's den and see how that goes for you. Not well. Yet Isaiah says, the time will come when they shall neither hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. And uh, parts of nature that are currently at war, red in, uh, in tooth and nail, as the old saying goes, will not be so always. I'm more convinced that that's going to be the case. But 
The Lord's God is not the Lord's arm is not waxed short. And the last thing I want to do is limit what the God of Israel can do uh, for His people, and uh, therefore I believe it's an open question. But I believe long term and across the board, uh, there would be more uh, restoration and reversal of the curse uh, through the methods that God has prescribed. And sometimes that's lost in the shuffle when we're looking for the uh, sensationalistic miracles that for some reason seem to be very difficult to repeat or get on record or have a proof of. But we have, in other words, is a whole bunch of what I would call anecdotal evidence uh, and very little documentation and proof to show for it. And that's okay. Uh, if God is working, he certainly doesn't need to conform to our standards of proof. Um, nonetheless, it's an interesting uh, question that's being raised. And this certainly Korea exposes another whole area, which is the war in Christendom between cessationists and, uh, say, the charismatic quarter of Christendom, uh, both of them disputing the power of the Holy Spirit today. And uh, that uh, is a whole separate discussion. In fact, it's, it's a hornet's nest, and uh, you need, if you want to go at, to, at that hornet's nest with a bat, I think that'd take a whole a couple of sessions, hours worth to go into. It is a difficult question. And again, more heat than light has been shed in that particular area. There's an emotional attachment to it that then comes to the fore. Uh, any other um, initial questions? Good morning, Roberto. Good to have you back again today. By the way, for those of you who wonder, I don't always see what you guys see on the screen when uh, you're putting the questions up. You might see something scrolling up that I do not. My screen tends to be a little bit more static, and uh, and I sometimes have to review the session like I did last week to say, oh, there's a couple of questions that rolled off that I never even saw in the process of answering the ones that were before me. So I'll do the best I can, but it's up to Facebook and their little app to do all the magic. And while we're on the topic of magic, remember modern science actually has much more to do with magic than Christendom does <laughs> because the whole premise of magic is the control of nature, control of things that are not normally under control. Do I believe that Protestantism suffers from a lack of centralization? From a lack of it or too much of it? <laughs> uh, this question actually came up with some interesting Facebook dialogues that uh, I was at least paying attention to and I shared a little bit of uh, some perspectives from scriptural evidences. One of the scriptures I find most fascinating is in Isaiah 4, verses uh, 2, 3, 4, and 5, but particularly verse 5, where we are learned that uh, everyone had known about the great pillar of fire and smoke that led Israel through, let's say, the Red Sea and into Sinai, etc. Uh, God spoke in the midst of it. And it was generally understood as a, a theophany, uh, in all likelihood, theophany of Jesus himself, pre-incarnate uh, appearance in the form of a pillar of fire, fire and smoke, which makes sense in 1 Corinthians 10. So at that time there was only one pillar of fire and smoke, and you followed it. It was a centralized situation uh, insofar as where all the instructions are coming from. Uh, well, who do we follow? We follow the one pillar of fire and smoke. But in Isaiah 4 verse 5, upon all the dwelling places and assemblies of Israel shall there be a pillar of fire and smoke. The exact same thing that had been just one is now millions of them on each household. So there's a sense in which decentralization is definitely in view, uh, at least at some level, in that passage. And for us to just throw it away and say, no, we're going to stick with our institutions and we're going to centralize them as much as we can is a dangerous thing. 
uh, I think certain forms of Protestantism try to find a balance between the one and the many, between the centralized, say, General Assembly, and then down to pres presbyteries, and then sessions, and, the, and the, things on this order. So there's an attempt to find a balance between them, and I think uh, all of those efforts are worthwhile. Warfield made an interesting point about church polity, and remember, he was a dyed-in-the-wool Presbyterian, but what he commented was, all the systems work from the most autocratic monarchical system of the papacy down to uh, extreme anarchistic congregationalism. And he says that they all actually work, so there don't seem to be the determining factor yet. He has his own views on why Presbyterianism is better, but he says apparently God is able to work through all of the weaknesses of our bad systems because it's not so much the system, the metaphysics, if you will, that matters. It's the morality of the people that are in it. Every time we say we can solve problem A by adjusting the environmental variables, then we're talking like Marxists and humanists, which say all we got to do to have paradise on earth is to structure it right. And the God of Scripture says the problem is not <laughs> the structure. The problem is the heart of man. And so you cannot make a good omelet with bad uh, eggs. See the point? So every time we start to talk about structure, institutions, we've lost uh, the sight of what the scripture says is the most important part, which is the moral functionality and cap capacity of mankind, of individual men in particular. All right. So yeah, I don't think, think it suffers from a lack of centralization. I think it uh, suffers from, in many respects, too much centralization. And then the question is, what should we centralize around? You know, is it institutional? Is it a governmental structure? Are we going to now um, massively generate hierarchies? Uh, to what end? To what purpose? Is this appropriate? Is this what God has in mind? Uh, I see the notion of every man under his own vine and fig tree indicative of, again, the higher level of decentralization. Certainly, if you took seriously what we said last week about the division of the tithe, as reflected in Numbers 18 and Nehemiah 10, you don't have big, uh, heavily funded churches that are monstrous. It just is a, that would only happen if the people of God were willing to voluntarily do that as gifts over and above. And you certainly would have a microscopic state if only the poll tax of uh, Exodus 31 was the valid civil tax. And I believe a strong case for that has been made and continues to be uh, defended uh, with vigor and, and biblical uh, insights to that end. And of course that means where is there a place for any centralization? What should be central is Christ. And we see this notion, I think, conceptually in Isaiah 19, verses 18 to 25, where the conversion of, the, of Egypt, the Egyptians, is predicted. In fact, it says, uh, they will all speak the language of the lip of Canaan, Hebrew, and moreover, uh, the Assyrians will also be saved and converted as in, uh, completely. Now, at the time Isaiah wrote, those were the two greatest enemies that Israel had ever faced, mortal enemies. You know, Egypt tried to destroy everything, as we well know in the, in the Exodus, etc. And Assyria came online and was the current issue, uh, as Isaiah related, most particularly in Isaiah 10 and beyond. So these were the two enemies of God. These were the Gentile contingents that were trying to destroy Israel, and yet here they become into the kingdom of God, and they are part of it. And we see that they, they still have borders, because there's a altar to Jehovah built by the Egyptians at the border of their land, and God honors that, even though it's not been built in Jerusalem, God honors that altar that they build. And we see that the, there's a highway built between Assyria and Egypt, and the Assyrians shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptians shall go into Assyria, and they shall worship together. So the central factor here is the worship of God, not some other uh, 
institutional capacity, rather their joy. And we see this reflected even in the beginning of this prophecy about the Egyptians shall swear an oath to the Lord and perform it. Here we have honesty of uh, communication and uh, commitment. In other words, duties are being observed and covenants made and honored and not broken. Uh, God, man isn't a covenant breaker. We see that verse in, in the big list that Romans lays out, Paul lays out, covenant breakers. Asynthetosi, we are the ones who are not inclined to do it. Here they're keeping God's covenant. And we see a level of decentralization. So much so that the whole idea about Israel being at the top of the chain is violated by Isaiah at the last end of that prophecy. He says, Egypt, Egypt first, Assyria, and then the, the third part, Israel. Now that's pretty bizarre to put Israel literally third after Egypt and Assyria have been listed as God's people and God's possession. Israel then the third part. Look it up. You, you can't evade it. It is bizarre because usually firstness indicates priority and preeminence, and that's not the case. Isaiah, Isaiah says the Gentiles are coming in first. And really, uh, I've said this before, that means that Paul in Romans 11 is commenting and applying the teaching of Isaiah 19. That the Gentiles come in first, blindness has happened in part to Israel until all the Gentiles come in, all the Gentile nations have been saved, and a partial amount of the Jews have been saved, and then the last part of history is the Jews coming in as a people, the caboose of history. And so the whole notion of a gigantic hierarchy, which had traditionally had been, at least in dispensational quarters, Israel being the head and everyone else the tail, is inverted here by Isaiah. And apparently even the sequence is inverted and preserved when Paul touches on this topic in exposing uh, to the Gentiles, you should not be conceited because they're still coming. Exactly as Isaiah laid out, there'll be the third part, the final part. Okay, there's folks that are sharing the video, and, and they say they seem to be appreciating it. That is a good thing. And if you have criticism, well, you can certainly bring that to light because a wise man receives rebuke, and we certainly make a point of receiving all comments, positive and negative, and we take them all seriously. Uh, we compare them against Scripture. We certainly consult with one another uh, at our little institutional level, which is about three men and a dog sometimes. It feels like that. And yet we have a large uh, outreach and impact throughout the, the world. So God doesn't mind using small things and small people. Uh, he simply insists on using faithful folks. And I think that's huge. If you're faithful in what you're doing and you're calling, uh, like we said last week, the hand of the diligent shall bear rule. You see a man diligent in his labors, he shall stand before kings. Yes, I do see Roberto. You see, Roberto asks Martin, how do you see American culture working itself out? I personally believe that everyone needs to collapse in order, f everything needs to collapse in order for Christians to rebuild uh, a new Christian, uh, and it stops at Theo, and it doesn't, yeah, I don't ever get the full question. There's five whole lines, and that's the end of it, and there's no more for me to click. So on a technical point, folks that can see the whole question, eh, that's a problem when I don't see it. Do we need to burn everything to the ground and start, well, first off, it's not a prerogative to be the one burning, but can God, does God need to burn everything to the ground to start over. In other words, how do you reconstruct? And this is one of the big questions uh, of the moment. And it also relates to how do you um, reconstruct anything? And my position is you have to restruct, okay, theocratic government, okay, to rebuild a new Christian theocratic government. Uh, and that usually, that question usually arises because of the notion that the existing government is completely inconsistent with what we have. So what is government? Well, if Christian self-government is fundamental, 
then the external government that exists can be shrunk by the expansion of Christian self-government, as opposed to saying, let's put in a brand new monster government. Because think about it a second. You cannot suddenly say, we're going to have the Christian theocracy and drop all the um, size of the government down and then expect all those functions that had hitherto been done by the state, because the state zooms on in and says, look, you Christians are not doing the poor tithe, so we're going to build a social security system and welfare and all sorts of, and food stamps, and we're going to take up the slack that Christian indolence and failure has uh, given us and delivered. And we're not going, so we're going to go ahead and create the safety net because the church failed. And this is what Rushtuni said. He says, no, you actually, you, you can't just shut those systems down because they're doing the church's job because the church uh, sold out to its own prerogatives and messages and left the poor in the lurch. And we know this, uh, God is very unhappy when the poor are not receiving, say, the poor tithe, when they are being defrauded of it, as uh, I think Mark 10 teaches. And, and Isaiah, certainly in the first chapter, goes against this. He says, you know, you're grinding the faces of the poor, and then God takes up the cause of the poor. So what do we do with all these social issues? Uh, do we, you, you can't just sh shut that entire system down. And this brings us back to, uh, and that's why Rushton actually defended those things. He said, you can't take those down until we have the replacement in place. Uh, otherwise, there's going to be collateral damages unacceptable. Uh, then that's on us. That's not on them, because the, the other system, the state system, is supporting them. We, we suddenly shut that down, we don't have a replacement in place. Then that collateral damage is, uh, you cannot talk like Lenin, who says, well, you know, we have to break some eggs to make an omelet. So if it takes massacres, Lenin thinks, it's okay, because then we get our par workers' paradise at the end of the process. That's a disaster. So let me answer the first question <coughs> that I posed to myself. Reconstruction, I believe, must come from inside a corrupt system. You're reconstructing that. And so the pro question is, how do you go about this process? Well, how do you reconstruct the school system? Well, the public school system is shot. It's gone. It's it's a gigantic disaster, and it simply is uh, multiplying its failures every single uh, year. It's interesting to me that when Bruce Short was looking for publishers for his book, The Harsh Truth About Christian Schools, he couldn't find one who would take it. And in his view, one of the factors to that was that most of the so-called Christian publishers were owned by bigger companies that happened to be publishing public school textbooks. Consequently, no one was going to kick over their own rice bowl. Cal Seedon stepped up and said, that's a hot potato we'll be happy to handle. And so we published the book. So it shows there's already a problem in terms of, um, I don't want to call it corruption, but certainly, um, maybe I should, because <laughs> a, be a better word's not coming to mind. But it's a disaster when Christians are shunning the truth that's necessary to heal the culture around us. All right? Yeah, that's the title, Harsh Truth About Public Schools by Dr. Bruce Short. Uh, again, we have someone who's got a, a JD and, um, and a PhD, one from Stanford, one from Harvard, they got this inverted, and uh, was a, um, a Fulbright scholar. So he turned against the system that he attacked, and still no Christian publisher would touch that book, which explains what the problem is. So you have to create an alternate system. You create the alternate school system in the middle of the country where the public school system exists. And then you have homeschooling rising and Christian schools rising, presumably with good curricula, because the other problem is states more than happy to have you homeschool if you use their curricula. So that's got to stop too, because it's compromising. It'll just create more status with the parents presiding over the process because they don't know that they've introduced poison into the stream of education that they're feeding their kids. So 
uh, also a catastrophe in the making if we are not careful of what we're teaching our kids in our alternate system, if it's not as alternate as we think it is. So you see the point there. So alternate um, institutions in the midst, and those take over government as they grow, and it shrinks as a consequence the other system. So it's like healthy tissue replacing the cancer, right? Uh, it's not so much that you have to cut out the cancer or beam it because if you if the cancer's in a place where it's inoperable, then you kill the patient. That's pretty much what Rushdoni's view was, if you want to paraphrase it and using that symbolism. What you need to do is grow the healthy tissue, and it replaces and supplants. In other words, to use the other example, if you're going to do nothing but pull weeds and aren't planting fresh new seed, you will have nothing but a weed-free, empty field with no fruit. So he said, it's much better use of your time to be planting seeds and uh, moving forward with that. So reconstruction must always be from inside the system. And so the alternative is revolution, not regeneration, but revolution. And Chalcedon, as a rule of thumb, has invariably opposed the concept of uh, revolution, uh, which is that kicking over the tables. Uh, God is not restricted in his methods and mechanisms. You're saying, well, the only way that we can solve this is for this to die, is means the only way uh, that God can do this, see? Because we've actually now put, uh, I know what I talked about earlier, we said, is the Lord's arm waxed short? And no, it is not. Uh, he can do anything that he wants. He, and, but, and that's where the question is, what are we faithful to do? And I think we need to be faithful in building those alternatives. And that's not attractive. For example, if I am homeschooling, I am paying for education twice now. I'm paying for the public school system I would, would just as soon see disappear, and I'm also paying for the education of my children directly. Uh, so that's the cost, to dig yourself out of the hole. And so Rush Duny pointed out that most folks that talk about this revolutionary uh, cashier, the whole thing, really want to get out of the hole quick. They want a fast, quick, dirty solution as opposed to the hard work necessary to do it properly and actually uh, through and with Christian mechanisms, through building. Building is the mechanism. Work and building, vocation, not destruction, but construction. Reconstruction is not inherently destructive, uh, except as that it supplants over the process of time uh, things that are uh, destined for the dust heap of history. And God helps us along his way with those concussions we talked about last week in Hebrews 12. All things are being shaken and laid in ruin that the kingdom of God may remain. So anything that's opposed to the kingdom of God will be destroyed. You know, one way that's been put is that the uh, the Word of God is the solvent of all institutions not based on itself. So it's going to do the work for us. You don't have to worry about tearing down the federal government. Its seeds of destruction are guaranteed because it's built on sand. And our job is to be there with the alternatives and, and grow those alternatives in the midst of this so that there is a covert in the storm, right? If you look at the passage in Isaiah uh, 35, 8, about the highway of holiness, that even the uh, wayward man, the fools, will not err when they walk on it. I call it the idiot's guide to holiness. You walk on this path, and he says, and therefore men will be a covert and a storm and a safe refuge from, from harm. And that's what you want. And therefore there won't be any harm as a result of the process of going uh, and, and solving these problems. Uh, now, of course, you could always enter into a war-ridden era, but that should not be laid at the feet of the Christians at the source and cause and the instigators of it. Our mission is to build, and that's what Reconstruction is, is a construction project, right? And it's done in the midst of something else. Jeremiah has planted a tree, and that's a construction project, and a massive act of faith on his part to do that, considering what he was facing.
Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. Okay, so are you saying that Christians pay their taxes and pay the tithe at the same time? Yes, today I say exactly that. Uh, that gets us to that old meme, taxation is theft. Well, if you're using any of the resources that the state's taxes uh, are paying for, that's a problem. You know, it might be that failing to pay taxation is, is a, a uh, theft too. Uh, your question is from whom, I suppose. But nonetheless, it's a problem because we don't have privatization of roads and highways. For those who are interested in that topic, because that always comes up when, you, when everyone says, hey, how do we get rid of the state when who's going to do the roads? Well, Dr. Walter Block, not to my knowledge a Christian, something more like an agnostic, perhaps. Uh, Loyola, I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, economist, has actually shown how that works. And it's a kind of a fascinating, thick read. But you actually get fewer deaths on the highways if you privatize all the roads, because now there's competition in the road you're going to drive is the one that's a safer one that's maintained properly and uh, that's not what we have because what occurs nowadays with this bugaboo why taxation is so critical the roads is that uh, we are taught that there is an acceptable level again collateral damage we expect 50,000 deaths a year whatever that horrible statistic is on the roads and it's nothing to be done about it so we live with that but under privatization you don't live with that you get a much safer road and that, can, that number could be radically shut down simply by having the roads not owned by the government and certainly not maintained by the government uh, in other words whenever the government's involved there's a middleman and the middleman's taking his cut and his bureaucracies and his regulations, and under a biblical system, that would not be the case. So what do you do? You have to start privatizing roads. And how do you get there? It's laid out very well in Dr. Block's book, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time other than to recommend it, because it's an eye-opener for anyone who uh, thinks it cannot be done. Not only can it be done, it can be done much better than the state does it. So yes, tithing and taxing have to both be done at the moment, but if you continue to build, your children may be uh, exempt from the, those taxes will shrink, and it'll eventually shrink, in my view, down to the biblical thing, because you have to teach it. If you teach, if the gospel spreads and the teaching of all things whatsoever Christ commanded, which was uh, referenced by Mark in his sermon just a little while ago, if that proceeds, then conviction concerning proper taxation of the civil government as proper size will arise, and the government will no longer be forced to expand into all these areas which it believes it's compelled to because the Christians have retreated and gotten out of the business, of taking care of things that God says they ought to take care of, uh, then we can reverse things. So essentially our problem is self-inflicted that we have a large state. Therefore us to say we're going to solve the problem of the large state and the big taxes by rebelling against our own Frankenstein monster is not a prescription for a healthy future. You will never get to your goal that way. I'm as much interested in the goal as you are, but how we get to that goal is just as critical. Uh, it, it has to be done God's way. And thank you. That's a good point. Tithing and Dominion is the book that uh, Edward Powell and Dr. R.J. Rushton collaborated on, and I highly recommend it. I cite from it constantly. Another good source would be Dr. Robert Fugate's material on the same topic about uh, government and taxation. I think his website is lordofthenations.com, if I'm not mistaken. It might be .org. And uh, there you can get that. That's uh, good because he expands on Dr. Rushton's work. So uh, what we appreciate is folks who say Dr. Rushtuni wasn't the last word on topic X. 
he uh, strove to take some new ground, and now we're going to go occupy that and expand the boundaries of what he took back captive to Christ. And that's what Dr. Fugate did, in particular with the, the, the poll tax discussion which we've had. So all exciting stuff from my point of view because people are awakening to the relevance of the scripture that applies to all of life. That, that We're talking about a faith for all of life, not just a faith for Sunday morning and maybe a Wednesday prayer breakfast. The Word of God applies to all things at all points, in all vocations, all practices, all disciplines. And when you have all these institutions that are intent on going their own way, uh, it's our calling to bring them back. And uh, sometimes a wise man will say, you know, the best thing I could do is to see that I shrink my organization because that's the step in the right direction because the end game should be no public schools, but yet universal education because the Levitical tax, uh, the tithe, if you will, is being used properly by Christians and not being misdirected like it is so terribly today, in our view. Are there any other questions? This is the first of three articles, but oh, good, thank you. Uh, I see we have, I don't have my normal technical director, but uh, we certainly have someone right on top of uh, <laughs> getting links to folks that are uh, listening in on the live part. Because, of course, we have two things going on. We have the uh, radical uncertainty of a live broadcast uh, here out of uh, Georgetown, Texas, where I am at. And then we have other folks that are looking up things online and getting those um, particular posts labeled for subsequent research. And it surprised me to see almost 500 people had looked at last week's messages and were clicking on the links to see what they link, uh, led to. And that's a good thing in my view. Um, because all we can do with the Q&A is scratch the surface of most of these questions. And in fact, I tended to go too long and still could only scratch the surface, which is indicative of the depth and the riches of the Word of God and how they can apply. Uh, people could send me questions ahead of time. and I don't mind doing things off the top of my head. Uh, they're certainly welcome to do so. And uh, I will Facebook friend anyone who wants to ask a question in good faith. That's an important proviso because uh, it's a miracle we don't have trolls yet, but it, it may happen. And, of course, we need to treat the troll like anyone else in a godly way. And I guess we should, since we don't have any subsequent questions, let me uh, expand a little bit on the, the question of taxes. Uh, my view is our tax rate is about 11,000 times too large based on the notion that, at least for America, the total tax for all governments, top and bottom federal, state, and uh, county, city, should be under $600 million based on our population and the biblical requirement in excess is 31, Exodus 31. So uh, obviously my interest is in a radical change. And a lot of this change comes from different places. Remember, people say, we can do about national defense. Well, your national defense is a gigantic sieve doesn't matter how many successes you're going to have against, say, a North Korean nuke, right? Because all it takes is one miss of your defensive system, one little glitch being off by just two feet, and you haven't intercepted that nuke. And now you don't have protection at all. The sword goes through your land, according to the scripture, because you're violating God's law, right? But there's a promise in Leviticus. He says, you know, if you keep these commandments, the, the sword shall not go through your land. There's a promise of peace. Upon all the glory shall be a defense is also part of that verse we talked earlier about, Isaiah 4-5, uh, where God's law is kept and honored, God protects. God is the hedge. He protects the nation. And that is a protection you cannot buy. 
what happens is that because we violate God's law as a nation, we have no choice but to choose these very expensive sieves that are not a good shield and defense and refuge. Uh, and we put our faith in chariots and horses. And of course, uh, this has its own curse. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man who makes flesh his arm. One of my favorite quotations is from John Howe, who says, um, The power of an almighty... No, here it is. Uh, the... The arm of flesh signifieth a great deal when the power of an almighty spirit is, is reckoned as nothing. In other words, when you factor God out of the picture, then the only thing that matters to you and that which looms large in your vista is the arm of flesh, and that's what matters. And you want the biggest arm of flesh you can get. You want Popeye arms. You want massive aircraft carriers and warrior and, and things on this order. And the biblical requirement that says you go, the only safe haven is in God, he's the refuge, and he'll protect the nation from all external attack, and internal attack too, is through a way we don't want to go. We don't want to obey God's law. So we cast away the solution that God gives and say, that's nonsense, God's not going to protect us, we have to protect ourselves. We're going to trust in the arm of flesh. And therefore God sends the curse because we deliberately spit in his eye on this point. So it's no wonder that we think uh, we can look stand pretty defenseless and people can attack us. You know, when your God, ways please God, even your enemies are at peace with you, the scripture says. You know, and the scripture can't be broken. So the fact that our enemies are not very pleased with us and are not at peace with us is a reflection of our relationship with God. It's because we are functional atheists and don't believe in the scriptures that we go down these paths. Uh, yeah, there, there's some uh, good links that have been put out uh, that certainly touch on these topics and explain a little bit further. And I've certainly spoken on these points during the Chalcedon conferences that we've had over the last eight years. I think it's a big thing. Uh, in Jeremiah, there's an interesting passage where he says, the God speaking says uh, of uh, Jerusalem, I believe, is to take away her battlements because they're not the Lord's. Now that's an interesting comment. It means all my protections, all my hedge and all my militaries and armies, God says, take them all away because they are not God's. They're cursed because they're not God's. They oppose God uh, in their attempt to protect lawlessness. Because that's essentially what you're doing. He said, we're going to protect our lawlessness by raising up all these things that keep us we're happy where we're at, fat and happy and sinning, and, and, and casting God's law aside as some kind of uh, uh, menstruous rag that we don't want anywhere around. In fact, we condemn it as uh, some kind of tyrannical nonsense, when in fact it's the only uh, transcript for liberty that we're ever going to have, uh, because God spoke once and twice have we heard it, but 30 times we've rejected it. So Chalcedon is here basically to say, hey, uh, the law of God... Is going to still be here for a long time, right? The, the islands are supposed to be waiting for it. That's the promise in, uh, in Isaiah 42.5 in the Messianic prophecy, and uh, we're not delivering. So God's going to have to find someone else if we don't wake up. And so what we're waking up people to is the entire scripture from A to Z, from Genesis to Revelation. A lot of pastors say, yeah, I believe and preach the whole thing, all the 66 books. But when push comes to shove, all sorts of sections of that are up for negotiation, and they ought not to be. God's word is non-negotiable. Uh, if we err, it should only be err because we are in good faith trying to get the scripture right, not because we are desperate to protect little fiefdoms and existing sins that uh, and practices that don't stand the scripture sniff test. And much of what we do doesn't pass that test. It's remarkable how much it is. It usually surprises people when, my, when I lecture on this stuff. I ask, uh, how many of you guys have a job and being paid regularly by your employers? And hands go up. And said, how many of you believe you're being defrauded? 
no one. Um, so we say, all those who think they are being defrauded, put your hands down until all the hands are up. And then I quote the passage in Leviticus that says that if you're not being paid every single day, daily wages, not weekly, you're being defrauded by your um, employer. It's a fraud against you because that those wages are your property, not his to hold and put on the float and get interest on for a whole week. Because the modern system says, in principle, those wages still are owned and are the property of the employer. And that's why he's allowed to keep them. In Scripture, they are not his property. They're your property, and they belong to you by the end of the day that you finish your work. And nowadays, it's not a big deal to have daily wages because of the computerization of everything. Everyone just drops in there, which is unfortunate because people should be using gold and silver uh, and, and not digits on paper, which certainly facilitates uh, another whole disaster, which we talk about as the economic uh, rebellion that we have against God's law. But nonetheless, you see my point. Most people aren't aware that the law of God applies even to how they're being paid, and we are living with a massive fraud on our hands, and all of us are participants in it. Uh, and, and contractually, we're saying, well, that's okay. Well, the God is not okay. It's a problem. Yes, yeah, that's the interesting point. It's not practical for me to pay you daily, right? Uh, so it's not practical to obey God. And that is going to actually redound on your because God can simply say, I'll destroy all things that are not uh, obeying me. And actually, that's what's going to happen. All things that are not in line with God are on that sand, and they will not be able to stand in the day of judgment. So the, the practicality argument is a very sad commentary on how far we've fallen. It's not practical for us to reform. We are too far committed. This is the notion of uh, the doctrine of sunken costs. We have too much sunk into this system that we have for us to fix it. Then God's going to certainly uh, chop that system to pieces, and knock it out from underneath, you know, knock the slats out from under it. All these things are doomed that are uh, conspire uh, by man's agreement. We're going to do it our way and forget God's way. And that's a prescription for cultural uh, decline and uh, catastrophe. It may be a very rapid decline. It might be a slow erosion, but nonetheless, it's guaranteed. And in fact, the way it's put by Micah is that uh, your downfall shall proceed from the midst of thee. It's an internal collapse, and that's what's going to happen. Micah 6. Read uh, Micah 6, 8 through 16. You'll see there's a lot more to that bumper sticker verse, Micah 6, 8, that most people quote. Read the context. There's all sorts of economic stuff going on in there, and it would shock you uh, to realize it's um, it's there. For example, in that very same passage, it says, you know, God's, one of the reasons that God's going to condemn them to destruction is that you are obeying the statutes of Omri and, uh, and of uh, Ahab, right, and the judgments of Ahab. In other words, these long-standing laws passed by earlier administrations of Israel, you're obeying them. And for folks who say, you must always obey the state. Well, according to God, you're obeying the state here, these old laws that have been on the books, I'm going to destroy your nation for it. So you better be on God's side, because when God's against you, there's no hope for you. You're, you're going to go down. Your nation will collapse. Please comment on the idea to not despise the day of small things when it comes to starting from where we are now. I think that's an important verse. It's uh, from the fourth chapter of Zechariah. And, of course, they're building the temple up again. And he's promised that uh, the hands that uh, have started building this, Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, etc., that the hands that have started it will bring forth the capstone thereof with shoutings crying, Grace, grace unto it. And that's an important point, is that uh, the temple, the building, whatever God is building, will go up entirely. 
But people were weeping because it didn't look anything like, for those who were old enough to remember, they must have been, must have been there in the 90s at the time, uh, coming back from uh, the, that the Solomonic Temple was a massive structure, and this was much smaller based on the size of the timbers laid for the foundation for Zerubbabel's temple under Nehemiah. And so the people were weeping it because of the size of it. Others were rejoicing. We're building God's temple. Others were weeping. And it was a small thing. And I think uh, as we look at that passage, there's a fascinating element in it. Uh, because why... You actually quoted half a verse in the question. Uh, Despise not the day of small things, but it continues on and points out that the seven eyes of God uh, are on the a tin stone at the end of the string, which, are, which represents a plumb line for determining how straight and true the uh, blocks are being constructed. Now, I always point this out, actually walk around on a stage, if I happen to be uh, discussing this verse, uh, saying now this is a fascinating thing because there's nothing cheaper than a rock on a string. I mean, it's, it's not an expensive tool. It's not like a, a hammer from Craftsman by any stretch. It's the cheapest tool in the kit. And why would the seven eyes of God be focused on that little piddly rock at the end of that cheap string, which the architect is using to make sure everything's straight? That's where God's interest is. God is interested in where the reconstruction is occurring. And, and the reconstruction of the temple is, as, as most basic part, that the stones are being put straight and true, and God is therefore interested in that rock hanging at the end of the string. God is in that tool with the man who's using it, even though it is a piddly thing. And yet, all of God's attention is on that rock. So folks who say, well, this is not significant enough for God to be worried about it. it. It's a meaningless little act. God is extremely interested when folks take up and build things straight and true, even if it's a small thing, like this next rock, where's it going to go? And where should we put it? And how should we position it? And how should it be... Uh, Claving with the tools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, that whole point about despise not the day of small things relates to where God's attention is, because God is always in the process of things being made straight. Remember, what was John the Baptist's mission? You know, to call for the making straight all the crooked paths. God is always going to be in that process. When we're straightening out a crooked path, God's in it. And so too here in the reconstruction of the temple under Zerubbabel. Zechariah notes that God's eyes, his full attention, is on that cheap little stone. So for us to despise these small things, the day of small beginnings, small things, it, it can go either way in the translation of the Hebrew, is to mock God and figure he doesn't work through small things. Absolutely he does. He loves to confound all our expectations. He uses the, uh, uh, the humble to confound and overthrow the mighty. It's his way of doing things. The foolishness and folly of preaching is how he uh, propagates salvation across the globe. And it's foolishness you know, to the Greeks and the Hebrews who seek different things, one signs and one other wisdom. But here is instead the foolishness of the gospel. God, his methods are not man's methods. Isaiah 55, 7 and 8, famously quoted so often by serious scholars who comment about the difference between God, the gap between God and us. Your thoughts are not like my thoughts, and my ways are not like your ways. As the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways and thoughts above ours. And so it's to our discredit when we uh, mock and uh, have no faith in a small beginning, which has very meager resources and capital behind it. That doesn't matter if God's behind it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do. And that was kind of the, thank you, Aiden, that was the 
verse that I was alluding to. I didn't give an address uh, at the very first question that was posed. So, yeah, that's a good reference. And uh, again, it can be taken straight as face value. But the question is, what are the greater works than these will he do? And uh, that, that gets to be very, very interesting. Uh, one possible solution to that question arises in the chapter, uh, well, there's only one chapter in Obadiah. But in Obadiah, he makes the comment about saviors, plural, arising on uh, Mount Zion and judging uh, Esau. So that's, uh, that's a fascinating point. We know there's only one Savior, and yet apparently those who operate in the name of the Lord can function in the same capacity. Uh, not saving by atonement, but rather functioning as um, salt and light and healing in a broken world and a broken rebellion against God. And it looks like Aiden brought that quotation up twice, or my screen is split screen, or I'm seeing double. That, since that's possible, I'm going to drink a little bit of water here and not be so hoarse in my voice. By the way, uh, when Jesus says verily, verily, or amen, amen in the original Hebrew, I think we do need to take uh, serious note of that. One place where we don't seem to take note of that is uh, when he discusses the law and his relationship to the law. And uh, a double verily means it to be taken very, very seriously. We should uh, definitely be very cautious in trying to nuance the way what's being spoken of. Oh, good. I'm not seeing double. Because then I might figure I've been answering questions for too long. Actually, we haven't had as many questions this uh, session as last time. Uh, but we'll hang in a little more, see if uh, any more cues show up for me to provide A's for. And if not, we will probably will close the session. Aaron, good to have you in. Hope the weather's good down where you're at. Yeah, they don't want me to go past one hour because that's a pretty long um, video to have to review. In fact, uh, even though I uh, complained about bite-sized, you know, sound, sound bite theology last uh, week, there's a sense in which we can communicate a little bit more uh, in shorter passages and shorter answers and yet provide some links subsequently that'll help folks dig deeper if they're of interest. Because not every question that I answer is of interest to every person. Um, apparently they're of interest to me because I'm trying to answer them. But nonetheless, you get the idea. Aaron, good to have you in today. By the way, folks don't know, Aaron Yacht uh, wrote a fascinating uh, novel for children. Um, and it's worth getting a hold of because it applies Ventilian and uh, Reconstructionist principles. Something Princess of Nulland. Aaron, if you want to show a link to the book, uh, I'd be more than happy to have you do that if you're uh, listening. It's one of the books that uh, we reviewed at Calcedon, and uh, I think it's suitable for your bookshelf and for your children to read. It's got a tremendous amount of moral lessons in it. I believe it's in a second edition now, if I'm not mistaken, Aaron. And uh, if so, yeah, that's good to hear. you got good weather up there, too, in Michigan. I assume you're still there. And... Uh, that's a book worth uh, worth getting into your library for your children. Uh, I also, of course, would recommend Lee Dwiggins' Bell Mountain series, probably the, the best that I've seen in this whole area of uh, literature for children and young adults. Uh, powerful. All right, how do we reconcile the different amounts of restitution in the Bible? I've seen double, quadruple, quintuple, and one and one-fifth. 
That's an interesting point. Rushduni does, in fact, discuss this uh, in the Institutes and also uh, in the various commentaries, the Pentateuch commentaries, where he goes to the different verses. But basically, it has to do with the amount of damage done. That uh, that one fifth is when there's an inadvertent um, loss, if you will, and it, the restoration requires that extra one fifth. Uh, and then the others, the, the, the double is when it's a relatively straightforward uh, part of property. But the quadruples and quintuples occur when we have something that, for example, if it's an ox, a trained ox, to start over, uh, and that ox has a bunch of investment of time and energy to raise it and to train it uh, to know all the ropes. So well, you cannot just say, Here, here's the cash for an ox. Well, where's about all the cash that's necessary to raise it and train it? all that time investment. So uh, what happens is that we always have proportionality in Scripture. The Scripture always reflects that uh, use teleonis, right? The, the fact that you know, the, we call it, I have this no, bad notion about eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but really it's stroke for stroke, all these things. It means it's proportional. Uh, we don't have a wildly crazy uh, penalty for a minor transgression. In Scripture, it's always proportional, particularly in terms of monetary restitution. And so all these restitutions are designed to reflect the true loss that was inflicted uh, by whatever uh, caused the restitution had to be ordered by the judges of Israel at the point in time. And we should be anxious to do this. In the case in um, of uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, it was in the tree, short, too, couldn't see Jesus up in the tree, and then Jesus uh, invites himself basically to dinner with the tax collector, which went over like a lead balloon to everyone else. And uh, interestingly enough, Zacchaeus says, you know, four times, whatever I've uh, defrauded people, I will repay it. And Jesus proclaims, salvation has come to this house. Well, it turns out that whatever it was he was defrauding, and it was probably to the poor, and there was a fourfold restitution, and, and his willingness to repent and pay back fourfold meant he was aware of the scriptural requirement and he was willing to fulfill it. And uh, he had eternal life as a consequence. Salvation came to his whole household because they all believed with Zacchaeus that this was the right thing to do and they were all in it together. The household repented as a, as a group because they benefited from all the fraud going on uh, on the part of this tax collector. Unlike Zacchaeus, that rich young ruler of Mark 10 did not want to pay back what he had deprived the poor of. He was guilty of the uh, failing to pay the poor tithe. When Jesus listed all those commandments, we said this last week, one of them was, thou shalt not defraud. The Greek word, asposteristus, used uh, in one instance as, as the term to defraud the poor of the, what's due to them. Therefore, when you apply the fourfold penalty for that, he had to sell everything he had and give that up, give to the poor, and he was willing and unwilling to do that. So all these restitutions are always proportional. There's nothing where God... Uh, and I think this is really taught in Hebrews 2 too, right? Where every uh, transgression received a just recompense of reward. We can be certain, based even on the New Testament, that each of those peculiar uh, prescriptions and formulas was absolutely just. And to ask for more or less would have been unjust, either too, it was too heavy, it would be unjust for the perpetrator, who's now doing too much restitution to, to make things right, or the victim is being unjustly handled. Currently, modern American law is uh, uh, treats the state as the main person getting paid back, right? You know, these are considered as, uh, as crimes against the state versus individuals. So we don't have proper restitution. We don't have a law system that anyone respects, and consequently, it's writing its own death warrant. Uh, did I miss any questions? Got some more good friends joining the discussion here. The last question I saw related to that.
but thank you folks and uh, Andrea I do not actually have a a clock running because when you're on the system the clocks aren't accessible on these computers because otherwise apparently it would take that capacity away from the ability to do video so if we get close to the hour mark you uh, you let me know that we have one last question say and I will accommodate that and limit my discussions and then we can certainly take up the, uh, the thing not uh, 10 minutes left that's good plenty of time for me to get into deep hot water with some kind of hot potato question what's the greatest problem facing the church today in my my opinion well of course they all stem from one core issue which is a neglect of God's law but one of the biggest symptoms of this is I think that so many um, church members have their children in public school which essentially is to basically forsake the entire next generation and turn them over to Satan and turn them over to a system that is anti-Christian that is dedicated uh, tooth and nail, hammer and tong, to making nothing but humanists, atheistic humanists in the process. They want you to have a humanistic education and it will go against uh, the grain of what God requires and I think this will be required at the hands of every parent who puts their kid in a public school and every pastor who tolerates it and, and uh, winks at it and promotes it. And I have horror stories, I'm sure most of you folks listening have had those same horror stories uh, where uh, or the pastor, his his wife is a public school teacher, and they actually have, have, have examples in Baptist circles, of all things, uh, of uh, homeschoolers being approached about why aren't they getting their kids back in the public school to be uh, witnesses to God. In other words, there's, there's open disdain, and like you're the weirdo, again. And of course, I think you have to accept that. If you're doing it God's way, you're going to be the weirdo, and that's okay, because uh, lots of saints in the past have had to deal with the fact that they could not be the friend of the world if they're going to be God's friend. You can't have both at the same time. So you're going to make a choice. It's going to be an important moral choice. Now what happens as a result of folks seeing how bad the public schools are and taking their kids out of public schools and becoming homeschoolers, all of a sudden there's an openness to other parts of the Word of God. Because now they're saying, how am I going to train this kid without using the exact same curriculum that I had before, which the state's more than happy to give to me. Of course they are, because they would just as soon have the exact same result. This is the hazard and the danger of uh, vouchers, right? All the vouchers are going to have strings. There's no such thing as a stringless voucher from the state. And, it's, and a voucher is simply a way to try to get out of paying twice. And I think Christians have to have the character to say, we dug ourselves in a hole over the last century and a half. We're going to need to uh, dig ourselves out the hard way because the, the quick shortcut answers are not going to cut it. We need to have the character to say, I'm going to pay that horrible property tax, whatever it's going to do, to support that idiotic system. And I'm going to also take the energy and time to make sure my kids are uh, homeschooled and not go to that public school that I'm paying for. And that kind of character it will make a change. Remember, as Otto Scott said, character determines destiny. It takes a man of character to say, I'm willing to pay the price to do what's right. It's the, it's the failure to want to do that. It's the cr uh, cringing and the cowering away from bad alternatives that uh, show immaturity in our faith and uh, the fact that we're going to have to be spoon-fed, just like that generation going through uh, the wilderness for 40 years. All of them were spoon-fed, and then their bones were bleached in the wilderness. Why? Because they had no vision for the future. They wanted quick, dirty answers, and uh, they wanted an easy street to get into Canaan. And it wasn't easy street, but God's promises would have went with them, and only Caleb 
and Joshua had any faith. We need more Caleb's and Joshua's today. <laughs> Funny story about Caleb, and uh, Dr. Moorcraft loves to tell it. Uh, Caleb, when he was given a choice, what land would you like to have in Canaan? He he picked the toughest part, and he was old. <laughs> he was an old guy, and he still he wanted the part that would take the most work uh, to to deal with. Another question, are we going to see economic judgment in the near future? You know, that's been predicted by Reconstructionist economists for a long time, almost since you know, out the gate. I think every Christian Reconstructionist economist um, who seriously, takes seriously Austrian um, theory, for example, which tends to be a reasonably good approximation to the biblical truths, it has problems, problems and fundamentals like value and things on this order, so origin of value. But uh, we've always said it's it's got to collapse because all we're doing is putting it off. And as we all know, and Gary North very rightly said, a depression is the recovery phase of an economy, just like withdrawal is the recovery of a heroin addict so his body goes back to normal, even though it's a painful process. But And Ron Paul uses a different terminology. Ron Paul would say well, all that malinvestment has to be adjusted and purged out so all the prices come back to the correct level and all the valuations come back to the truth uh, we don't want truth in our interactions with other men we want to be able to defraud them with, by uh, paying off debts and cheaper dollars and stuff so it's a huge incentive for us wicked Americans to want to uh, stave off a disaster and we call this a repressed depression uh, Gary North also in his pivotal book um, and books I should say about Christian economics introduction to Christian economics uh, goes through excellent detail on all this, and I recommend it. I believe it's being made available. It had been out of print for a while. So that's a good place to go. Um, so the question is, how long can they do that knife-edge balancing with the pseudo-Keynesian junk to prevent the disaster when we have so many uh, holes in the dike? Uh, and that's yet to come. It, ultimately, it, it probably will. But then we also have the beauty of Christians doing alternate systems and alternate economics in the meantime. Let me see what this question was. It just popped rolled up. Zachary. Do you think that the current societal taboo on discussing politics and religion speaks to the hardness of Americans' hearts? I just started watching a few minutes ago. Sorry, I've missed some of them. Okay. Hey, I just started speaking a few minutes ago. I missed some of it, too. And I'm the one talking. So, uh, yeah, there's a, there certainly is a hardness of heart because we don't want truth in our inner being. And we certainly don't want to be confronted with, with hard things. And... We want to have a pure humanistic social context for everything. And so we actually propagate the lie, and this lie is exposed very handily in the very first chapter of Rush Tooney's book, Law and Liberty, you know, about can you legislate morality. His point was actually all legislation involves morality because it says you do this, it's bad, and we're going to do this to you, and if you do this, it's okay, we'll let you do it. So every law basically bifurcates between those who obey it and those who don't. It, it creates morality on the spot by fiat. Uh, so we're being sold a bill of goods when we say, you know, you can't legislate morality. And that false principle, which is then floated and becomes the status of a dictum, a maxim, uh, apodictic uh, statement from on high, now governs all our discussion. And so why do we not introduce the Bible to politics? Because we believe it's a oil and water mix. Uh, the truth is, we, they don't want the Bible introduced because it'll, uh, it is, again, that solvent that tears apart all institutions not based on itself, and it would tear everything down and say everything we have built here is wrong and is actually doomed and will fail, and our best bet is to build an alternative to it in the midst of this system 
So we're there and ready uh, to overcome the problems that are going to be uh, arising in our nation when the fall, inevitable fall, will occur. Now, the shape of that fall is going to be a mild deterioration or a sudden implosion. We don't know. Other factors will determine that, but God's going to be in charge of it. So, uh, yes, and a lot of Christians are of the opinion that you know, we aren't, you know, this is not Christ's time. Uh, Christ is more interested in, in other things than earthly things, and, and, and we don't get our fingers dirty with worldly things like government and politics. Well, the scriptures actually seem to think that Jesus gets his own fingers dirty. After all, the government shall be on his shoulders, Isaiah 9 7. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David to establish it with justice henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this, Isaiah 9, 7, the whole verse. So that's the mission. If the governor is on Christ's shoulders, and, Isaiah, and Psalm 22, 27, 28 tells us that he's the governor among the nations, the, 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 the denial of his government over all things, that he's on the throne in the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, uh, is a fundamental violation of the creation order. And uh, that means that we're living a lie. And this is what I have to say about lies. Isaiah 28, God says, I will uh, flood your refuge of lies, and I will expose you. And I will, in other words, we hide in our refuge of lies. He said, we made death uh, our refuge and hide behind a covert of lies. He said, and I will flood it and flood you guys out, and the lies won't protect you anymore. And that's what's going to happen. All the lies will be destroyed, and God's in the business of the truth proclaiming, he shall lead justice to victory. Interestingly enough, that phrase, the Messiah leads justice to victory, which is from Matthew 12:20, is a quotation from Isaiah 42. And in 42, it says, he shall lead justice to truth. Truth and victory are considered synonymous. When Jesus quotes it into the Greek, he shifts the word truth to victory. That's a profound thing. Ah, it looks like we are done for the, the day. Thank you, folks, for everything. Yeah, Zachary, it's, it's way too common. And uh, we need to be agents of change, uh, proclaiming the truth with courage. Thank you. Appreciate everyone's time. We'll see you all next week. I, I'm not so sure about the Sunday that falls right after July 7th because I'll be in Pennsylvania at the Future Christendom Conference, and I'll have to see if we can uh, communicate from there or whether I'm in an airplane, and I'm not likely to be able to make this uh, session. So if we have to sk skip one, that won't kill us, I don't think. And uh, in the meantime, I'll see you all next week. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce 
including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.